And just as I started getting ready to record, I could hear the birds chirping outside. And I thought, how fitting. Because my next guest, in an indirect way, forced me to look at nature in a different way. Before I even had any interaction with this man, he had me in tears, bawling, weeping, yearning to pull myself out. And there are just so many great things that I could say about Alexander John Shia. And you've probably heard many other people say wonderful things about this man, but his work impacted me in such a way that I didn't think a book could. And I'm getting emotional just talking about it right now. Um, that's how transformative the heart and mind process and book study and adventure was for me. I'm, I'm so honored. I'm so honored to have you all hear the discussion and that it's erotic. And Alexander actually helped me unfold eroticism in such a beautiful way because he showed me that the gospels are erotic, hence the title, The Erotic Gospels. What I'm even more grateful for is that he's a patient listener because I'm an avid talker. And he's also a meaningful speaker. And you'll pick up on that when you start listening to this amazing conversation. We talk about so many things. He shares a beautiful story about how he helped others throw their grief away while he was in a process of throwing his own grief away. Uh, he talks about being emotionally removed from his family after he came out. Um, and we talk a little bit about some of the more taboo ideas about what we think we know about Jesus and his upbringing. And he says something really great that really sticks out for me and really just kind of, I think, reiterates a deeper knowing of something that I've gleaned over the last few years from all of the other incredible authors that I've read from is this, there is an assumption of the culture that a Jewish teacher is married. And we often aren't willing to think about Jesus as potentially have been being married. And I've referenced this often, often enough that it might even be redundant, but another, another theologian that I admire and respect is Cynthia Bourgeau. In her book, The Meaning of Mary Magdalene, she unfolds the possibility of Jesus not only being married, but possibly being married to Mary Magdalene. And so I just really appreciated how Alexander was willing to kind of toe the lines of the taboo topics and openly discuss uh, eroticism, really. And so this is the series finale of The Erotic Epiphany. And I hope that you've been able to understand a little bit more about the love of Eros, about the erotic phenomenon, and about the encompassing, ever-evolving eroticism that we don't realize that blankets our entire lives. And I think this is a great way to end a series, to end it from a traditional view, but also a non-traditional view. And one of the most beautiful things about Alexander is he's so humble and he recognizes and he admits He's not trying to do anything new, but what he's doing is he's dusting off the shelf of the ancient that was forgotten. And something my friend just recently said to me over lunch, too, kind of echoes this idea of that when we really get down, when we really explore deep 
in, in, in far beyond conformity and norms and traditional ideas that we think we are supposed to value and hold as our moral compass. The more we expand, the more we learn, the more we grow, the more we realize it really is like the small things, the simple things. My, my friend Nora Speakman has this, has this hashtag movement and mentality of because small things matter. And the work of Alexander, the acknowledgement from my friend over lunch the other day, and just kind of the things that I've been observing do demonstrate that the small things matter, the simple things matter. And maybe it is the traditional ancient ideas that we've allowed to gather dust that need to be dusted off so that we can walk into this century and this possible reformation of churchanity and the church and Christianity. Basically that we'll see that we are, maybe we're overthinking it too much. Maybe we're trying to make things more difficult than they really are. And so I just kind of like how everything comes about as I'm wrapping up the editing of this podcast, as I'm putting all of this stuff together, as I'm growing and changing in my own life, it's nice when other people's ideas kind of ping pong off of each other to show you the wider image that you were meant to see. And I feel that this book was put in my life at the most opportune time, at the time where I would be most willing to receive the challenge of Alexander's book. Now, if you don't know who Alexander John Shia is, let me tell you first, you can find him at quadratos.com, and that's Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-O-S.com. There, you can find out more about Alexander, you can find out more about the four paths, the four passions, heart and mind, different interviews he has participated in and different events that he will be speaking for. I encourage you to check out his website. There's so much valuable information that's available to the public for free. Um, There are so many videos that are available for you to watch to see more about what this heart and mind journey is. You can learn more about Alexander's Walks in the Camino. Um, Beyond that, find him on Facebook under Alexander John Shia Author. And then, of course, there's the most exciting news of all is that the Shia Speakman House is coming together, and that includes Alexander John Shia and Nora Speakman, who is an author and a podcaster and just a great human being. And so that publishing house is developing and coming soon, and they have a Shia Speakman House Facebook page that you can also click on and like and follow and so that you will be up to date on everything that is transpiring with that. From there, listeners, all that I ask is that you compassionately consider the perspective of Alexander John Chaya. So there were a lot of things that you've touched on, and I kind of wanted to see if I could dig into a couple of things that I heard you speak to a little bit. I couldn't stop thinking about, and here we're going to go deep right away, 
Um, I couldn't stop thinking about how you had said that. (laughs) I go deep. Um, (laughs) You said that there was a wound in your father that had never fully healed. And that was after the time that you had made a decision in your life where you couldn't fulfill the obligations of the path that your whole family wanted you on. And I'm wondering if we could go back in that time period and just kind of talk about what brought you to say such a profound statement about your your dad not being able to ever fully heal? Which wound was it that that did that for your father? Well, if you know the story of how I got my name, that when I was born, my father, who had no intention of having a son named Alexander, saw me minutes after birth and said, you're Alexander. And Alexander is the name that was given to the son to be the next in the family line of priests, that I come from a line of priests that goes back about 14 generations in the small village in Lebanon. Wow. And so I grew up as the apple of my father's eye, as my two brothers will constantly remind me. (laughs) Uh, And I had a lot of advantages because I came along later in my life. My family had become very middle class. They had a little bit of affluence. Uh, I had the chance to go to college where my two brothers did not because they needed to work in the store. And uh, so I had this wonderful, present, loving father until high school. And in high school, that was the Vietnam War days. And I was really wrestling with if I had been called up, what would I do? And of course, for my father, there was only one answer, and that was you serve in the military, although he had never served in the military. Uh, And then I wanted to go to college, and he didn't really want me to go to college. He wanted me to go directly into seminary. Mm -hmm. But we arm wrestled that through. I went to Notre Dame, which was not his choice of a college. And it was really at Notre Dame and in my theology classes there that my whoever Alexander is began to truly emerge. And there were all of these new thoughts that were very contrary to what my father would have me believe. And so there was a, there was a distance between us which really started to grow in college. And it was also in college, if you can believe. I can't believe when I think back myself. We're talking like 1971, 1972. I was coming out as gay. I mean, it was in those days to me, it was like, well, of course. But when I think back now, um, that was just after Stonewall. Anyway, I, I, I was beginning to explore my sexuality. I was beginning to have my mind blown with all this wide, universal, compassionate Catholic theology at Notre Dame. And all of this was beginning to create a distance with my father. But things were were fine because I was still on my way to seminary. And I graduated Notre Dame. I went to seminary. But I wasn't in seminary for but for about two months. I didn't even finish my first semester because it was killing me. I was... Hmm just interiorly dying. And you had all these different components working against what you were feeling inside. And I can't help but wonder 
just the the erotic struggle that you were facing as you were coming out and then you're going to seminary and the the standard view is an opposition of homosexuality and i'm assuming your dad had that same view and then to have to wrestle with these ordained plans for you and you still pushed through it and you're where you are now but was there a time where you were concerned you would be rejected by god or had you come to such a, an understanding of how loving and inclusive god is that that wasn't a fear well first of all just let me uh clarify one thing i didn't come out to my father until i was in my late 20s so we're talking about oh 12 14 years after notre dame i oh. came out to myself i came out to members in my family did not come out to my parents um i had the incredibly wonderful experience at notre dame of going in to one of my favorite theology professors who was morton kelsey the episcopal anglican jungian priest it was the very first person that i told that i was gay and morton was just rather nonchalant and like great keep exploring and that being being received by someone who I respected his work so much and I respected him so much just took away untold years of guilt and wandering in the desert. Yeah. And then Morton and his wife Barbara really welcomed me as like an adopted son in their family and so I had this incredible fatherly spiritual father family that was totally accepting of my exploration of who I am. So no, I never went through the, uh, God rejects me, never. So you had this positive experience when you finally verbalize it to someone else, and that's the turning point right there, whether it's received or rejected. And yeah, and how- Psychologist, I know that trauma there's whatever happens that's traumatic is not nearly as damaging as when you tell that important person in your life whether they hear you or not yeah the person who hears if they hear or cannot hear you that is psychologically far more damaging than whatever happened to you yeah and so what do you think if you think at all about this what are some of the if you look at this from a church perspective, what are some of the steps that our churches could do to make sure that we're creating a space like that, where that first self-discovery that needs to be verbalized to, to the other is received so that we're, we're stopping that trauma? What kind, of, what kind of things need to be said to the church? What kind of, I mean, there's so much that in, in your specific book, Heart and Mind, that I feel opened me up to being ready to receive anything that came my way without judgment. And so what, what kind of methods would you put into practice? Could you peel out of even heart and mind that would help shape a new narrative, a new affirmation of the gay community within the church to break down these walls and to create this first positive experience? I, I don't know. As you say that, every time you say the word church, I shudder. <laughs> I don't know what that amorphous reality out there is anymore. Mm. But 
I, I hear know you on that. is um, really Christians who have gone on their own journey, who know the journey of transformation, and who at least if they don't understand homosexuality or if they don't understand sexuality, at least can sit with another person and say, I don't understand this, teach me. Mm. Yeah, that's good. If you could say that, if they could just say, I don't understand, teach me. And it reminds me of, of the teach, one of the teaching stories I have in my life, which, which is um, secondhand. When I, was, uh, when I was working in the Bay Area, I was very close to um, a Buddhist teacher. And uh, the Dalai Lama was coming to visit the Bay Area. And this Buddhist teacher who I know was, was invited to go and be in a small company with the, with the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama had just written a series of articles that seemed to be very um, dismissive of homosexual practices. It wasn't dismissive of homosexuality itself, but it talked about certain sexual practices that were not okay in Buddhism. And uh, so amongst the gay, lesbian, Buddhist teaching community, there was quite a furor. And they asked if they could sit with the Dalai Lama and talk with him, and he agreed. And so what happened that day, as I've heard secondhand, is, is that the community went in and the Dalai Lama said, first, I'd like to hear from you about your spiritual practice. Tell me about your meditation. Tell me about your spiritual practice. And they went around the room, person to person, uh, male and female, uh, lesbian, gay, LBGTQI folk, uh, everyone talking about their spiritual practice. And at the end, they had very little time left. And here's what the Dalai Lama said. He said, I see your radiance. And he said, mm. that's the most important thing to me is that I see your radiance. He said, I have been given a lineage and a tradition that I cannot simply dispense with but I see the truth of your life and I would like for us to stay in a conversation. I said, in that conversation, you may teach me to write a new precept or I may teach you how I understand the lineage. He said, but actually none of that's what's most important. What's most important is that we can sit here with each other and honor the radiance. Mm -hmm. mm. Our traditions could do that. Yeah. And to understand that seeing each other's radiance is far more important than a lot of our dogmatic precepts. Mm, yes. Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. Radiance. You are all about radiance and uh, luminescence. And you have a very particular view on light and dark. And I asked you a question and I said, okay, how do I use darkness? in a non-negative way. So with that, I'm wondering if we could go back a little bit and if you could maybe explain why the light and dark contrast just don't jive for you. Oh, that's a, it's a big, a big piece. And let, let me just give you some touchstones in my life. Okay. When I was shortly after I was born, um, my mother became very um, not well. 
And there was this magnificent woman in our home, and she worked in our home for 64 years. Um, and she was a, an African-American woman. She was the granddaughter of slaves. And she was my emotional mother. Um, because my my physical mother was not capable, and thank God for Emily and the presence that she was in the house. But I, I think that I've always known the holiness of darkness because of the care and the affection that she showed me. Mm. That was the, beautiful. The first piece, and and then the the second piece is. Uh, being taught by when I was in the Bay Area, all those years in the psychological community in the Bay Area, and being taught by other therapists and also seeing in the dream life of African Americans who I had the honor to walk with as a therapist, that so many of them, darkness and blackness was holiness and positiveness and integration. And whiteness was disease and disintegration and illness. And it began to teach me that um, whatever is positive or whatever is negative can be any color. Hmm. It, it's not that I want to say that all darkness is positive, but I also want to say not all light is positive. There's nothing inherent about dark or about light that's one or the other. And we really need to work to discover for ourselves what colors mean. But in Western culture, we use language which is totally unreflective. And everything, we, it's like it's just, it's become uh, an equation in Western culture that whatever is dark is bad, negative, to be cut out, destroyed overcome and what does that do to people with dark skin yeah something a lot of people take advantage of even considering though that whole contrast and how it's not just metaphorical when it's applied to the realities of people when i began to understand that concept that you unfold in your book i just i started really pulling back and forced myself to stop seeing things as either or or this or that or black or white and what i really appreciated actually is i felt like there was this kind of um we should gravitate towards the gray and gray is kind of like the theme of my life um and colors mean a lot to me and i see i see cycles and seasons that produce certain colors that seem to almost resonate with my emotions and just kind of the way I do things. So I really appreciate that you said that we should focus in on color. I really appreciated that call to the gray because it pulls you out of that desire to, when you're presented with anything, an argument, a statement, you're interacting with anyone, you're not looking for a way to condemn anything or to judge anything. You're looking just for a way to have yourself expanded. And that's what I, I appreciate most about all of the concepts and practices within your book, Heart and Mind. It's just, it's mind blowing. Sometimes you say it and I feel like I've probably read it that way or heard it that way from someone else. And I do this with my husband too, and it drives him crazy. But then you say it in a way and I'm like, I get it. You know, and my husband will say, well, I said that five months ago. And oh, well, this person said it in the language I understand. 
Now, you wrote this book with Michelle Gauki. Is that her? Gauki. I I'm just curious. Um, what brought you two together? Uh, so again, there are a lot of touchstones to to that, and um, this insight, if I don't know what to call it, but that it hit me like a ton of bricks in November of the year 2000. And it was a culmination of decades of work and research in psychological and spiritual and anthropological, et cetera. Um, I had been seeing the four paths in uh, other spiritual traditions and psychological methods and anthropological studies since the mid-70s. This relevancy of the number four. Well, the but but that at core, a journey of transformation has sort of got these four major parts to it. Yeah. You know, I just want to interject. I want to share something with you that I actually shared in my book study about the four thing, and it's kind of nerdy, but it's representative of Danielle, so you understand. Um, I'm weird with numbers, too. I also love Beyonce. And it was about the time I started reading your book. I watched some weird documentary on Beyonce and the number four. And she talked about actually some of, well, she didn't directly, people speaking for it did, but some of the synchronicity in the number four dates back to earlier civilizations and other religious beliefs. And so I was sitting there and I'm like, Oh, look at Beyonce and Alexander are qualifying each other with these ideas right now. So (laughs) I love it because sometimes I feel goofy and nerdy because I see things with numbers and I think, oh, that's relevant for some reason. And a lot of people are like, you're so weird. Just be quiet with that nonsense. (laughs) So anyway, sorry to interrupt. (laughs) The connection with Beyonce. I love it. Yeah. have to go search that out. But. We have to send her book to you, or mm-hmm. your book to her, and she'll be like, four, I love you, let's talk. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't ever want to go so like woo-woo over four because you can describe this in any number of numerical ways. Yeah. But um, there is a drumbeat in the anthropological studies and psychological and and I think even spiritual traditions, that four is a core number. So I started writing this thing, and, and um, Michelle and I had, Michelle at this point was uh, a gallery owner and wife of an artist and also the executive director of something called the Awakening Museum here in Santa Fe. And we began having these interesting lunch, lunches where we would just, uh, we, we love to sort of take different sides of a position and and uh, lovingly argue it out with each other. And I was struggling with the writing. And finally, one day she said, do you know that I write? And I said, no, I didn't. She said, well, would you mind showing me what you've done? And she took what I had done and brought it back to me about two days later with just a fabulous edit. And it very gradually, and we're talking that we worked together on this book for almost seven years. Um, And it ended up being a collaboration where I would write from what I knew and she would edit and then we would sit and scream with each other uh, because she was so dedicated to having emotive writing 
and I was so dedicated to having it say what I wanted it to say. <laughs> but the utter gift in this was Michelle did not grow up in a Christian household. She had never read the Bible. And for the most part, she did not know this story. Wow. And she would sit there and, and she has this background in English literature. And she would read the text and she would go, look at this. There, there's something more here than what you're telling me. And my problem, like many Christians, is I've been sitting in church too long. I've, I've heard too many explanations, too many sermons, and you don't even see what's in the text anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you have a new lens, you see everything under that lens and other people are like, what are you doing? Right. I, you know, I, I feel that way when I'm, I point to all the erotic things I see. I know during the book study, there was, I can't even remember which part there was. I know there was because I wrote to it on my Patheos blog too. I was talking to the, the guys about it. And I said, here's, I got, I got an erotic view and here's what I got. And it was the washing of the feet. And for me that I was like, that was deep. That was connective. That was authentic. And that was something that would have never taken place in everyday common occurrences. And from there I began, I was seeing so much uh, eroticism throughout, but it was specifically the washing of the feet. And I thought that, yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of like, give a little synopsis of that story and, and what, how you saw the erotic in that intimate moment. Well, first of all, yeah, from my understanding, you have to, to see that John's text is about what happens when two come together as one. And it's not two coming together to merge as one, but it's two understanding that they're in a dialectic. Yeah. So it's, it's, the vision of two eyes, but when you see through your true eyes, you see one. You don't, anyway. So, where, so one of the ways to track John is is the the tension between the two as the two as the duality is moving towards a unitive vision. All right. So here we come to the to the foot washing, and you know that this entire text uh, is about the the mystical poetry of two becoming one. And then there's the detail about Jesus taking, on, taking off his outer garment. Well, a Jewish man doesn't wear anything under the outer garment except his loincloth. And to be seen in your loincloth means to be naked. Yeah. And the only way that a Jewish man would ever appear naked would be to appear that way before his spouse. So already we have. Jesus taking off his outer garment before whoever is gathered at table is a statement of intimacy that I consider you my spouse. And then he does the foot washing, which we have all the beautiful allusions to a servant washing feet. But what's stunning is to know that in the Middle East at that time, foot washing was often part of the marriage ritual. Mm. And, and to just make that note, it made me start thinking about looking at all of the Gospels in a different way that we weren't used to looking at before. And you unveiled so many new ideas, uh, especially the idea about 
Adam and Eve in the garden. That one really, I sat there with my husband and I'm like, Corey, seriously, let's look at it. Look at it like this. And then of course, what that led me to do is go back and I started, my friend had said something about serpents being good luck. And I'm like, wait, the serpent's evil. So I go back and I did some, a little bit of homework or whatever on, on serpents. And I came to realize that I'm like, well, at one time serpents were symbolically represented with, with mother goddess and wisdom and sophistication. And yeah, after reading your book, I look at the Bible so differently now and I want to go beyond the Bible and before the Bible, but I'm jumping ahead. I want to go back. So for me, I really saw a lot of different, you weren't very, I, I guess you'd have to be looking for it like I was, but all of these erotic themes. And I'm wondering if you have a view of eroticism needing to be worked into our spirituality as I do. And if you do, how do you think we can get there? Well, I mean, the simple answer is yes. And let me tell you a, a, another story. Um, in the mid-90s, I was in the Bay Area again as a psychotherapist, and I had just gone through a, a very, very hurtful ending of a significant relationship. And there was uh, an elder from Africa, and he had come to the Bay Area, and he was going to uh, lead a, a five-day grief ritual, he and his wife. And uh, I signed up to do this grief ritual because I was in such internal pain and thought this will be a great way for me to begin to touch in and process the grief. And so we, we have to go to this farm area that's a couple of hours north of San Francisco and we arrive and um, the elder is Maladoma and his wife Sabonfu and Maladoma and Sabonfu began to talk to us the first night about all the different tasks that we're going to actually spend a day and a half where we physically have to create the ritual space and then we're going to enter into about an 18 to 24 hour ritual. And then we're going to have a day when we come out of ritual. But they open up by saying, well, the thing that, that we need is we, we have all the bodies here, but we need four people to perform a function that only these people can perform because they are gay, lesbian individuals. And in our culture, there is a spiritual function that only a gay, lesbian individual can perform for the tribe. Then hmm. the sort of stunning piece was, and if there are not gay, lesbian people here, we can't go forward. So there was another man and I, and there was a, a lesbian couple, and we kind of with fear and trembling, raised our hands. And we are immediately taken away from the community. And we have um, Sabofu, Maladama's wife, who spends the next day with us, ritually preparing us for the task at hand, which is quite arduous. And 
what do you have to do? We have to do is once the ritual ground was created, that one end of the ritual ground is the fire and the drummers and the rest of the community. And they are chanting for hours on end and they are drumming and they're chanting for hours on end. And we are up at the top of the ritual grounds and where the the shrine of the ancestors has been created. And um, there's a, an, a line of ash which demarcates the land of the ancestors. And the four of us stand just before the line of ash. And we have to physically restrain anyone who has come to the place of the ancestors to leave their grief. Well, I'm thinking emotionally, I know as a, as a therapist, I know what I think this experience is going to be like. Mm -hmm. But what I had no idea was the physicality of this, that as, I mean, we're talking about drumming and chanting now, which goes on for a day and a half. And oh the, four, the four of us split up into two teams. The, the, the lesbian couple was a team and this other gentleman and I were a team and we would each take one hour shifts. And that's about it all that we could, could take before we would retire and then come back for the next hour. And we had to physically and emotionally restrain people as they came to scream and in whatever way throw their energetic grief into the place of the ancestors. Wow. Well, what also was happening, and, and I didn't, I could almost understand it, but what I wasn't prepared for is that in those hours that we weren't in front of the line of ash, that each one of us was in our tent um, doing a lot of physical affection. It's like we, we, the, it was so utterly exhausting and in some ways you could almost say disembodying to do this work that as soon as we got back to the tent, it, it wasn't, go take a nap. It was like um, this other lovely gentleman and I just held each other. Um, and it was like that, that total physical, somewhat erotic, but not, not really sexual, but, but um, cause also we, we could wear very little clothing for this. Um, and it, and it was one of the most powerful experiences where well, I should probably finish the story. After the 18 hours, the four of us are taken away to a very different place where there's a lake. And we are taught how to ritually cleanse ourselves. And we have to bury everything that's been in the shrine of the ancestors. And then we have to ritually cleanse ourselves. And, and then we are brought back into the community. And when we're brought back into the community, we're brought back as heroes. The community has prepared gifts for the four of us. Wow. And it was the first time I understood that sexuality and spirituality are right together. Mm. It's not, you can't, I mean, and this is not about sexual activity, mm -hmm. but it's about sexuality has a gift in it, which is very close to, if not the same gift as your spirituality. And when you try to separate those out, you hurt human incarnation. Yeah, we do.
but but people do separate it well they compartmentalize they compartmentalize yeah that's that that harms incarnation is about integration not compartmentalization (laughs) i say that as a psychologist yeah yeah so you you a jungian psychologist yeah, I'm a Jungian psych. I'm not. A, I, I was on my way to become an analyst, and I and I took a turn from there and went into something called sand play. But yes, I'm a, a Jungian psychotherapist. Yeah, I'm fond of him. He he really set me on a trajectory of understanding that my desire to keep unfolding eroticism wasn't all that crazy, um, and. You know, I felt so blindsided too when I was introduced to him because I'm like, why am I not paying attention to this guy? And then I saw that you studied under him, but you turned me on to Joseph Campbell. Mm. And I really appreciated that too because, wow, his mythology and love is was so much for me. Um, just touched on everything that I've been reading. I've been reading um, Carter Hayward. Are you yeah. familiar with her? I mean, I am conversant, but I really need to read more deeply. Yeah, she's amazing. But um, so it was Joseph Campbell that unveiled this four-part story. And then you talked about the um, early Christendom text of Irenaeus. Yes. Yes. And Irenaeus. so, no, go ahead. Irenaeus. But- Oh, my, I'm so bad with pronouncing names. That's why I like to write all the big stuff. <laughs> the whole thing about pronunciation is, is you say it with confidence, people don't stumble on it. Okay, I'm going to keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I'm just going to bounce back over here. In Climbing the Great Mountain of Matthew, you break apart the flight of Egypt, the flight to Egypt, and you distinguish or you discuss the anguish that Joseph felt when he had to be separate from his family. That struck home for me. I have been separated from my own family for a couple of years now, and I've never been separated from any of them for any time. And that, that really pinged for me to, I had been wrestling with it for so long. And it, what it brought me to was that I still needed to heal until I would be ready to openly receive them that's what it it looks like from for me in my own life i had to wrestle with that and i had to sit with that and i'm still learning from it i'm wondering what what was that like in your own life what did that look like for you and is this the story that stuck out for you that helped you wrestle through it or were there other stories that maybe you that were more personal to you that you didn't unveil in Um. Matthew. From the point that this way of understanding the Gospels arrived in the year 2000, the Joseph story has come to mean a great deal to me. I can't say that it meant a great deal to me before that moment. There were other stories that that meant a great deal to me. But I love, I mean, I was with Rob Bell in in December and we were sitting down and talking like two old friends, which is kind of like what we've become. And, and talking about how if you are looking to tomorrow, if you have a sense of a vision, whatever that vision is, about something greater than where we are today, you can only do that because you walk with a limp. Everyone who is sensing about a need of something for today and tomorrow does it because 
they've been wounded. There's no other way. And so Joseph is the story uh, that has come to mean so much to me because I'm a Lebanese son. I understand the Semitic world. It's my DNA. And when I first left seminary, and then when I told my parents that I was gay, I was emotionally removed from the family, if not physically removed from the family. From that point forward for the rest of my life with my parents, um, I was less than because on the one hand, I had committed the great sin of speaking truth when the tribe is about, we don't want you to speak truth. We want you, we want you to obey. And if you have a variant viewpoint, keep it to yourself. Mm. And what I, I didn't understand until very late, it, it really after my father died, was you know, my father never said to me, don't be gay. My father kept saying to me, why did you have to tell someone? That's the Semitic tribal rule. You don't speak something when it's not something that's valued by the tribe for the sake of honor and not bringing shame on the family mm. who keep that hidden. I wish I had understood that when my father was alive. It would actually, it would, I, I disagree with it, but I, I would have understood better what was going on in my father. You would, would, you would have tried to maybe consider his own previous traumas or what he was trying to keep hidden? I, I would have, and I, I would have understood. I think I would have, not more, I would have appreciated the box mm. that he was in for most of his life. Mm. Yeah. And the tremendous pain of that. I'm not the only person in my family that's gay. I'm the only person in my family that has dared to speak it aloud. Oh my goodness. Well, that must be a burden for the other one that doesn't. Um, your book speaks a lot to living authentically, living into your life, living the real you. And I, I don't know, I, to imagine to be in your position, I mean, and to be able to so confidently walk in that truth. I just am in awe of it. I just have to say that it's just. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you know the line of Rich in the Wardrobe? One of my favorite lines from that first book in the C.S. Lewis series is, I think it's Prince Edward. Uh, Prince Edward says, courage is doing what you know you have to with your knees knocking. I, I read your book and it's your view on life and the way that, you make me want to be better. Like I can't, I go through this whole, what would Alexander say when I start thinking about, but I've been doing that more so with a lot of people. And I think that's because I, I've started to push away this idea that I, I don't give a crap what people think, but sometimes I actually do. And so I go through a list of people sometimes and I think, okay, well, here's what my reaction wants to be. And then I'll think about it and I'll think, you know, in some instances, what would my husband say? Or sometimes I even will say, what would Seth Price say? What will Nora Speakman say? And in a lot of instances, I, there's just some word that brings me back to what I've read of yours. And I think, what would Alexander say? Okay. And so what I mean by all of that is you're really, you've really pushed me to challenge myself to be willing to see that this person is actually me going through some crap that needs understanding. And I have to guess that you've had to, You've been in that position so many times 
where you've had to just go, I know I want to react, but. One, one of the, the, the wounds that I walk with, and I assume that many of us walk with, um, I, it, it's not easy these days, in my experience, for men and women to sit and talk to each other. Yeah, I hear you on that. Oftentimes I'm set in a situation, sometimes it's when I'm on the Camino, where I, as a man, am, quote unquote, the leader. And by, by my biology, it is so hard for women to accept that. And I understand it. And I don't know what to do up with it. It's a wounding that we both have. And I, I know that to this point in, in, in Western culture, we haven't seen the mature masculine. Mm. And women have been hurt and harmed and held back. And you need, in my mind, I think you need to shine. But I also want to say to my brothers, we don't have any role models for being a mature partner. In, in my mind, I think both genders are wrestling with this. And it may be that we need time with each, each gender needs time with itself before we can have a, a more fruitful dialogue with each other. I don't know. Mm. No, I agree. Yeah. Um, that echoes a lot of the things I've, I've read of Cynthia Bourgeau too, where she has this, this considerable lens for if Jesus was with Mary Magdalene, if Jesus, even if you're willing to go out and consider if Jesus had any kind of homosexual relations with anybody, what would that really affect in a harmful way? if you knew that Jesus also experienced the love of Eros, not just Storge and Philia and Agape, but all four of the identifiable loves to be fully human. And I I presented this as a statement too, to be fully human. I believe Jesus needed to experience the love of Eros. And if we were willing to accept that men would be willing to fall into each other's arms and embrace because they're just feeling heavy and stressed from work and kids and wife and demands. And we wouldn't go, I'm not gay. We wouldn't go, I don't want anyone to see me like that. Um, my husband recently, he had, it was a farm crisis and we ended up losing like 250 hogs and we had 15 people from all around just show up all these men at the last minute, late night on a weekend to help him out. And at one point he said he just broke down to his service manager and he just cried and he held him. And I thought, okay, that needs to be duplicated. Men in that working environment need that space to just say, I have to fall apart right now. This has overwhelmed me, this crisis, I don't know what to do. And to have that space. And I thought, that's it. And then, you know, it's optimistic too, because I think, okay, that's the power of Christ and it is popping up more and more and we need to stop shaming it and trying to cancel it all out of our culture. I mean, there's this, there's this some function seminar going on convention, how to make women great again, led by men only catered to women who are allowed to attend at $2,000 a ticket to teach women how to, how to get pregnant how to be a good housewife, how to reject feminism. And I'm like, what, what is going on that men are so scared of the feminine? Yeah. Um, 
many, many decades ago, early the early 90s, I was part of uh, the team that held, put on a conference called On the Masculine, where we had um, women talking about the masculine principle, whatever that might be. And we had men talking about a man's journey. But one of the things that came out of that conference for all of us that were there, there were a hundred a hundred psychologists and psychotherapists. So we all came out of that with a commitment that if I was a man, I would only talk about masculine psychology and that I would listen to women. And I would not talk about women's psychology because up to that point in psychological history, we didn't have women describing women's bodies and women's selves and women's psyches. Yeah. Men describing them. That's not women's psychology. Nope. Yeah. I think that was a lot of the um, issues that, that arose during, during the sexual revolution, during early second wave feminism and the pushback, you know, Freud and Freud and Jung and Ellis weren't the gods. And we needed to start considering more feminine psychology and female perspectives. And I remember just what with Lillian Rubin too coming on the scene. It was so hard for a woman to be taken seriously and to say, but really. And then when you say something like that, it's appalling to so many people. And I think, well, no, it's okay. It's okay if you don't want a woman telling you what it's like to be a man and vice versa. I mean, all those psychological greats, and I honored them, and I have learned tremendously from them, but all those men primarily treated women. Yeah, that's such a story. I just, I think that um, that's why there's such a call for, I, I don't an erotic epiphany. <laughs> well, and, and, and there's another step in that, which we're just now getting to which is now the LBGTQI community is beginning to write their psychological story. Yes. And we have to rewrite things from Jung. I mean, Jung stopped writing 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, guess what, folks? Anima isn't the same as feminine. And animus is not the same thing as masculine. That the interior opposite wisdom figure can take any gender. Yeah. And, and can actually be any any particular image. So we, we've got to set aside as this absolute map that a man has got an inner feminine. Actually, the, the better psychology now is men don't need to get in touch with their inner feminine. That's not their, their development. The man needs to get in touch with his inner masculine. Mm. The woman needs to get in touch with her inner feminine. There's a whole range of psychologies within the feminine as there's a whole range of psychologies within the masculine. That if a man is a solar masculine, he, ne gets to, he needs to be in touch with what we call the lunar masculine. That's not the feminine. What's the lunar masculine? Well, it's whatever is opposite to a person's personality. So if somebody is more an alpha solar masculine, they need to be in touch with the, the more yin soft receiving masculine. Mm. When, those, when that oppositional dialectic in the man comes into relationship, then a man can come into relationship with a woman because then he's got an integrated self to bring into the relationship with the woman. Mm. But the whole idea about, making, about men need to be in touch with the feminine I hope I hope that you might hear that 
in the same way that a woman does not need to be in touch with the masculine. Yeah. Gender needs to be in touch with the range of opposite qualities inside of themselves. Mm. And when that integration happens, then you can come into a more healing whole relationship with an outer opposite. Yeah, but the problem is, is we come into relationship first before we come into understanding of ourselves. <laughs> and then that's even worse. <laughs> Everything's amplified. We're married and still growing up. <laughs> True. Yeah. So we, 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 need, um, we, we need really effective adolescent rites of passage. Yeah, we do. Exactly. That's exactly where that work is supposed to happen. What do you think that would start with? I mean, I, I used to have this idealistic desire that churches would change their confirmation processes into a really a journey of adolescent rite of passage. That's not going to happen. But um, I have real hope that small communities, that, that men will really see the need to develop an, a real initiation for their sons. And a real initiation is not, I'm going to take my son out this weekend, I'm going to give him a bunch of symbols, and I'm going to tell him he's a man. A real initiation is something that the boy must be able to fail. Wow. A real initiation for a girl, she must have the ability to fail. Without the ability to fail, it's not an initiation. You haven't really learned anything. It's a performer. It's a nice, it's maybe a, a, an ego support. But initiation is facing a death moment. And a death moment is really close to a failure moment. Hmm. And from that, they... They, they, learn how, um, they learn how to move through what others may consider as death and failure and see it, that it's a lesson about growth. I like that. That's a good idea. So yeah. I... I'm sorry, did you want, do you have more to add, sir? No. Okay. How is sex like prayer? Well, I don't, I mean, sex can be prayer, and sex can be like prayer in that, for me, all of, all the human emotion is in sex. All is the fumbling, well, all, all the fumbling, all the, the wondering, um, the occasional full-on, orgasmic ecstasy, um, the softness, the roughness. The I kind of want to go back to something you said earlier. Because okay. in my view, we can prove very little about the historical life of Jesus from the gospel text, other than Jesus is born, Jesus taught incredibly wonderful things, Jesus died, Jesus rose. Everything else in the gospel is about about teaching us about transformation, not teaching us about Jesus, the person. And one of the things that is so clear is, if you know the first century, if you know Judaism, okay, you've got the Essenes who were removed from Jewish life, who were probably aesthetics and probably celibates. No Jewish man is going to be considered a teacher if he's a celibate. Really? No, that's shameful. A Jewish man's dignity and honor is to be married and to have children. There's no, there's no value for celibacy. And, and the fact that 
when you look at the text and it doesn't mention that Jesus was married, people from our perspective assume that means he was celibate. Well, as an anthropologist, you always know when you're looking at another culture, you have to ask, is something not being said because it's assumed? Mm. Yeah. The assumption of the culture is that a Jewish teacher is married. And by the fact that he's married, he has spiritual authority. Yeah. Well, you know, that's my problem with a lot of the early church fathers and all of the early work is there seemed to be this split and then there was this need for more purity and celibacy. And I thought, I don't want to take advice about arrows from dudes who didn't have sex. It's just, and then I go always go back and, you know, I appreciate so much, obviously, because it's led me to understand what I understand now. But sometimes I have to go, that was just a dude's opinion. I'm a woman. He's not going to think like me. And so, well, I mean, for me specifically, my hang up always comes down to with Paul. I always think, you know, he was still trying to figure stuff out, too. He wasn't the end all. I absolute because um, sometimes I think we put him up on a higher pedestal than Jesus. And I think. But he's still a dude. He was young. He was still trying to figure stuff out. I mean, five minutes ago, he was like, I'm going to kill all these people. And so I think it's okay for us to go, he just didn't evolve in his eroticism. And it's okay to keep pulling it back. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that you can prove that point one way or the other with Paul. But I mean, Paul's a hero of mine. Because without what Paul did, we wouldn't be here. I agree. And but that doesn't mean that he was totally integrated. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I just Rob and I talking about if you're of the future, you walk with a limp. I don't quite understand that. Um, it's 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 the psychological and maybe even physical wounding that's the source of your ability to rethink and see possibilities that others don't. And so you're walking with the limp, but you're, that's the limp is the wound. Yeah, a metaphoric limp. Okay. I just, I, I wasn't able to piece that together. Yeah, and, you know, that's my understanding of where Rob and I were talking. I, I wonder what Rob would say if he were sitting here, but we had this long conversation about that. No, about, about walking with the limp. With the limp. Okay. I was curious what you would consider your hero story of Alexander Shia. Well, there are two stories. And one is claiming who I am in the face of many, many who did not want me to speak who I am. And the second is this ancient contemporary way of understanding the gospel. And I, What was a real shock to me was to realize that really everything that I'm bringing out today was there in the second and third century and was very much part of the Alexandrian school of of how they understood scripture. So I'm not, Alexander's not creating something new. It's like I'm, 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 dusting off the shelf of something that's quite ancient and just got forgotten. But 
to stand up before Christendom and say, look, there's another way to understand these scriptures in the last 500 years of scholarship is kind of a foolish audacity. So I recently heard that, wow. I recently heard, or maybe I just read this somewhere too, that there is this pattern that every 500 years there is this new religious reformation. And do you think it's a pattern that we should allow to continue? Or do you think it's a pattern we need to stop? Well, it, it, one of the great authors of that pattern is Phyllis Tickle in her book, The Great Emergence. And Phyllis now lives on the other side. I don't know how she would answer this. Um, I think Joseph Campbell would say that there's a natural cycle that we all go through as humans, as cultures, as religious traditions. And that there is a cycle that every religious tradition goes through, which is a meltdown. It's a second path. It's a mark and moment. Yesterday's way of understanding the tradition is covered in ash. We're in grief. It no longer matches what we know about the cosmos and ourselves and our God. And we've got to go wander out in the wilderness and let God recreate it in us anew. So individually, we have to do that. Uh, collectively, we have to do that. Yeah. I, I don't have any other questions for you, my sir. I, uh... Wow. What? <laughs> wow. Danielle doesn't have anything else to ask. <laughs> it's been a very unique conversation. It has? Well, that's good. That's what I aim for, to be unique. Well, you know, I, anyone who's listened to any of the many podcasts I've been on, this one will be different. Yes. Good. Yeah. Good. We'll draw on a new crowd, too. <laughs> I've enjoyed that. It, it, it's very close to my heart, this issue of spirituality and sexuality. Mm, mine, too. Mine, too. I'm, yeah, I'm glad. And I'm just glad that you're willing to speak on this because I know a lot of people... I get really excited um, in private conversations with so many people about this as we discuss things. And I'll say, will you please come and have this conversation? I can't talk about this in front of people. Are you kidding me? Oh. There's a little known piece that I would just add um, to, to just help us understand how far down an unhelpful path we've gone. And so fourth, fifth century, there's this belief that the, that Christendom declares as heretical. It's called the Manichaean belief. Mm. The Manichaean belief believes that evil resides in matter. Therefore, the creation of a child is the creation of evil. So the church, Christendom, declares this as a heresy, thank God, but then lets it in the back door. And the way that we see this is in the early baptismal rites where up to this point, the person who stood there as a guardian for the child is called a sponsor. The name now gets changed to a godparent. And during the baptismal rites, the parents can't hold the child, only the godparent can hold the child. Because if the parents enjoyed the creation of this child, they may have participated with evil. Therefore, we need people 
who were not there at the creation of the child to safeguard the child's soul. Whoa. Whoa. And you just go, you look at that, (laughs) and you go back to our Jewish heritage, where we know that in Judaism, on Saturday night, on the night of Shabbat, Friday night, on the night of Shabbat, you're supposed to bathe and make love, and it's considered a good and holy deed. And how do you go from that to this? Yeah. You know, I was throwing some thoughts together uh, like a week or so ago, and I think I posted something on Facebook, and I said something like, God is a single mother, and I don't remember what else, and then now I understand the Immaculate Conception. And someone came on and was like, you mean virgin birth? And I'm like, no, I mean Immaculate Conception. And he's like, no, I think you have your terms mixed up. And I'm like, okay, so this is what I've interpreted it to mean. That the Immaculate Conception is basically the preservation and cleansing of Mother Mary. And one perspective I remember hearing said, she has become the savior of Jesus. And I was like, yeah, I kind of dig that. So for me, for, for Jesus to be the new Adam and for Mary, mother of Jesus, to be the new Eve, if he was born not of sin, that means she no longer gives birth to sin. And I took that to mean that women are not creating sin and women are not birthing sin. So when I try and explain this to him, um, he completely uh, rejected it all. But that's what I think is a part of the story that we miss too is we, we go through all of this right in process to make sure that we're also portraying the proper story and understanding of this immaculate conception. And I know not a lot of people even understand it, but for me, I'm like, that was Jesus represented the purification for man, but here's woman redeemed. And we miss that whole part of the story. And this kind of patriarchy just took over instead. But there are so many aspects where the woman has obviously been redeemed. And that means women everywhere are redeemed. They've received the salvation. And just to tweak one piece, the Immaculate Conception has to do with Mary's birth, not Jesus's. Yeah, and it dates. So that means not just from the day she got pregnant, but she was cleansed, right? No, that, that Mary is the image of the holiness of matur, matter. Matter does not have evil in it. Yeah, I like how that all ties together there. <laughs> Thank you. This has been fascinating. This has. This has. I could talk with you all day, but I know how busy you are. Well, I just... Thank you for all of your work. Thank you for journeying with the book. And, and the book is going to come out in hardback in a new title. Do we know the new title yet? Yeah, the new title is Radical Transformation, The Four Gospel Journey of Heart and Mind. Really, um, it's really where we've gone with the work because it, truly the gospel is a journey of transformation. But what I want, this is not rearranging the chairs in the Titanic. I think, I think you have a sense of that from from the last eight, nine months of working with this material. Yeah. Is you want to change your heart. You want to see the world in a different way. You want to understand yourself larger. This is transformation at the cellular level, not rearranging your brain thoughts. Yeah, no. And it's honestly, I, everybody asks me, what's the book? What's the book? This is the book. This is the book. I'm trying to get my whole family to read it 
Corey gets secondhand testimony. He reads all my articles about you. And I'm always, I'm like, okay, here's what Alexander said. Oh, by the way, see, look at, I'm serious. This is the book. Um, it'll be so nice when it's in hardback too. I'll get that copy and I'll say that's the untouchable one. Please give my hellos to Corey. I listen to him occasionally when he's come on with you. Oh, I will. I will.